0: Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adensasser. I am one of the Jews on Filmans. And uh, joining me, as always, is my co host, Daniel Zana.
1: Thanks, Harry. I'm Daniel Zana. I'm a video editor, documentary filmmaker, also a Jew. Our guest today is a contributing editor at E! Jewish Philanthropy and a TV columnist for J, the Jewish News of Northern California. She's also one of the hosts of The Bagel Report, a podcast about Jews and entertainment. Esther Kostanowitz, welcome to Jews on Film.
2: Thank you. It's really good to be here. I don't often get a chance to talk about film specifically Mm -hmm. um, because I mostly talk about television and we can talk more about why I'm I'm mostly preferring TV these days, but I'm really always happy for the excuse to kind of sit with a film and, and let it, let it uh, just kind of marinate in my own brain juices and see what we come up with. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, in this case, we had two and a half hours to sit and marinate with the film. Uh, today, we'll be discussing The Fablemans, directed by a small filmmaker you may have heard of called Steven Spielberg. And, he's uh, up and
2: coming. He's, up, he's yes, definitely up and coming. Not many people know about him yet, but you guys are in the know.
1: You heard it here but first. But an electrifying debut, I would say. Yes. Yeah. Not bad for a first, for a first outing. Yeah. Um, before we dive into the film, you know, we we often ask a few questions, but this is kind of a special episode at least for me, this was, I i want to say this was maybe my first film kind of in this whatever era we are in right now. its It's been my first like in-person theater going experience for uh, for a while. So I kind of wanted to talk about how that experience was for everyone. Um, I went with past guest of the show, Yuli Mazinovsky, to, to a place up here in Seattle. And I think there were maybe 15 people in the theater. Um, it was a Saturday night showing and, uh, it was good to see it on the big screen. Yeah. I don't know. How about you, Harry, yeah. Esther, what were your experiences I Steven,
2: like? I think Steven would have wanted you to see it on the big screen. So I'm yeah. glad you did that for him. Um, first name basis, I, huh? <laughs> Why your not? Best, your he's best Mishpacha, best. he's family, you know, sure, it's sure, just sure, like sure. that's he's ours. He's Sammy, he's Shmuel, Shmuel. Right. Um, so exactly. yeah, so I think. You know, so for me, I had been to a number of movies before. Um, I still remember the first movie I went back after uh, after covid was was Black Widow. And there mm-hmm. were like eight people in the theater. And that yeah. was it. And I was like, this is great, because like if there's only eight people in the theater, I can still go back to the movies. But, you know, obviously, they've become more crowded since. Um, and, I, you know, the theater I went to was actually the theater on the Upper West Side because I was in New York oh, okay. uh, when I saw this film. Uh, and it was the, it was like the corner almost where I used to live on the Upper West Side. So that was like really kind of like a homecoming, which I think is very much in keeping with uh, the the tenor of the film, which is really Steven Spielberg kind of going back to his roots. Uh, so I felt like there was a, a parallel there for, of sorts.
1: Was it a packed house?
2: It was pretty crowded. Okay. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't empty for sure. Um, and I I was reminded how old that theater is because the seats are really not comfortable anymore. And I remember when it was new. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, So, yeah.
0: Harry, how about you? Yeah, I I was telling you this before, Daniel, but I want to say this might be my fifth movie I saw in theaters this month. So I I've been back. I've been enjoying getting to the theaters. This definitely was a great crowd theater, and I'll I'll say like I've gone to a bunch of movies obviously since you know since we started going back in this whole COVID era, and I've done a couple that I was alone. I I recently went to a movie where it was myself, and then I had a friend or a friend I would call him a couple rows ahead of me who would you know loudly interject every so often just so I wouldn't feel so alone. So that was nice, but in this movie, I really felt like it was, I mean, it's a Spielberg film, you know, so we're not going to add anything that hasn't been said about his ability to just tell an amazing, engaging audience, you know, feel good story. But it was great to be in the theater with just a lot of laughter. You know, that was definitely a big marker of our screening and just a lot of engagement and a lot of, you know, people, I think, connecting at the right moment. So that really enhanced my experience. And I, I want to turn this into a sort of question for you, Esther, because, you know, you mentioned that you've been a little bit more into TV lately than movies. And, you know, we're talking about how this experience was really marked by the by the theatrical experience of it all and, and, you know, what that means. But can you expand a little bit on what you meant, what's going on in TV right now that's different? And, you know, why could a movie like this or could this story have been better suited to that?
2: Well, you know, I, far I be it for me to tell us, Uh, Steven Spielberg where his where his creative products should live
0: when when he listens to this maybe he'll uh, he'll send us some fan mail response
2: or next time I see him at shul he came to exactly car services for Rosh Hashanah and he read the new Colossus which is that Emma Lazarus poem that's on the base of the Statue of Liberty it's Mm, like from the Bima and they just called him up they're like uh can we have Steven up here And uh, my my friend and co-host for The Bagel Report, Aaron Ben Moshe was sitting next to me and she was like, Stephen. And (laughs) I was like, why do you know, Stephen? And she was like, Esther, Stephen. And I was like, because everybody was wearing masks and he was just this old Jewish guy on the Bima. So like, you know, what what did I know? But apparently. Um, anyway, so yeah, I'll tell him next time, next time I'm in shul like where his creative products should live. Um, but in, in general, one of the things that has really, uh, captured my interest about television, um, is both that there's more opportunities with with the central characters so that we get to know them a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And we also get to know the world that they live in better as well. So, so if a character in a, in a film is Jewish, they have to establish it either right away or it's blink and you miss it. And this was kind of, I mean, obviously being Jewish is very, very big part of the Spielberg story. And I guess we'll get into that when we talk about the content of the movie itself. But, um, I really enjoy the deepening of the characters where there's a character who emerges with a bit of wisdom or uh, a center of meaning that's based in Judaism. Um, We see a lot of it in, in like supernatural style uh, TV shows where they can always pull out a Dybbuk or a golem or something like that, Um, which is, which is, it's fun, but you know, it's, it, it can be just monster of the week uh, unless they, couch it in a story where there's a family tradition and, you know, there's, you know, persecution that the family always remembers, but that they have protection that they can protect themselves. And so that's why the golems in their family. So like, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunities for anchoring characters in Jewish concepts and life. Mm-hmm. In general and customs and calendar moments and all of that, um, that you don't always get in films, um, right. especially if it's not supposed to be a, a quote unquote Jewish story. Obviously Yentl is a little Jewy, <laughs> uh, the Frisco kid, you know, you can, you can do all that stuff, but right. you know, it has to be part of the character from the beginning. Otherwise it seems like it comes out of nowhere.
1: Absolutely. I'm, I'm just waiting for my uncle Boris miniseries, my eight part miniseries. I would watch that in a heartbeat. Yeah. I, I totally, I want to see him as a young kid, you know, as, a going to this, as a, exactly. I want to see oh, that. I point. feel like we were robbed of that story and I want to see more of that. So,
2: so it's like nightmare alley, but starring him. Sure.
1: Let's go with that. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen <laughs> right. it yet, but okay. I've heard, I've heard good oh, things.
2: well, <laughs> There
0: you go. I I think that's so interesting because it really, and obviously you were saying it in the context of this film that we watched the Fablemans, but I was definitely trying to figure that out the whole time. How, where does the Jewishness exist in the story? Is it just context? Is it part of his life? I mean, it's definitely present. You were talking about how they have to establish it in the beginning and maybe not the first scene, but the second scene is Hanukkah and they make a big deal of it. And they definitely do that, what you're saying, which is just throw it out there at front so that you know it's a Jewish film. Right. But for the rest of the story, I, I was trying to trace, is the Jewishness just the context of his life and it's part of his family life and we're going to have it as part of the world. But is that part of his journey? Does the movie actually play with that? And I think in some cases, yes. And I think that's what we're going to be doing here over the next hour or so and and talking about that and trying to mind where that happens. But I don't know. You know, I think with more time, the movie might've gone deeper into his Jewish roots and Mm -hmm. I think where it bleeds in, maybe it's a little more subtle than it would have been. So I think that's a really interesting Yeah. Comparison between uh, what a TV show could do.
1: Well, I have my, uh, counter over here and my rabbi counter. So as we're discussing the film and the plot and things like that, I'll keep track of how many times that kind of stuff shows up in the film. But why do you say we get into it? Um, can we get, let's get a little bit more context about the film itself, right? So as we said, it's directed by Steven Spielberg. It's co-written by Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg. We got a lot of heavy hitters in terms of, uh, you know, the music is by John Williams. Cinematography is by Janusz Kaminski, who he's worked with before on a number of things. I think most recently West Side Story.
2: Yeah, they're all hacks. Yeah. Just a bunch of hacks. Yeah. <laughs> First timers exactly. out of the gate. Right. Getting exactly. lucky. Right.
1: It's unbelievable. How, you know, but, uh, and then, uh, you know, with the cast, we have uh, Gabriel Labelle as Sammy Fableman, Paul Dano as his dad, Bert, uh, Michelle Williams as Mitzi, Seth Rogen as uh bobby uncle bobby and then judd hirsch as uh uncle boris as we talked about so um you know i think what i had heard was or what i had read about was that the film i think i forget on a previous film they had like discussed steven spielberg and tony kushner i think they worked on lincoln together and they discussed the idea of this film of wanting to do like a personal film and um i think you know at some point they had started writing some drafts and things like that and went back and forth. So it's been on his mind for a while um, to make this sort of intensely personal film. And I, I think now was the time to do it. Um, at this point, both of his parents had passed away. So I know that he, I wasn't sure if that was like a conscious choice to kind of like wait till they're gone to kind of tell their story. Um, but, uh, and and I think before we had mentioned on the duck soup episode that his mother uh, owned a restaurant in, in Los Angeles called the Milky way. Um, and she was a regular fixture there kind of playing host to a number of patrons, uh, including myself at some point when I was a little kid, you know, my grandparents used to take me there and she would always like come over to our table and say hello. So seeing this movie and seeing that portrayal of her was kind of, it's kind of interesting, but yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I live in LA. That's where you're mm-hmm. finding me right now. Yeah. Um, and just down the block from the Milky Way. Oh, nice. And I've been there. I was there a couple of times before she died, before Leia Adler died. Um, and it was it was fun. I mean, it was just like the food was it was, the food was fine. It wasn't like really anything (laughs) fabulous, but you look in, you, you, you go inside and there's like picture, there's a posters of Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. everywhere. And then she, she used to really hold court in that restaurant. Like she would, uh, go table to table and make sure your food was okay. And, you know, so she was really super sweet and very involved in the community. So, Mm -hmm. um, They they just did a, like a revamp of the restaurant and I haven't been there yet, but now it's like super expensive. And of course, you know, she's not there. So I don't know if I'll go back, but, uh, but yeah, it's definitely been a fixture in L.A it's funny I I saw
0: there was a, a recent piece of film criticism going around this past week over Twitter that I was reading where someone was talking about how they were they were criticizing this movie the Fable Mens and talking about how you know the the parents Michelle Williams and Paul Dano were were miscast was the criticism that they levied to the film and I think people were just like you're saying Steven Spielberg miscasts his own parents who he knows better than anyone like is that really right. like and the 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 critic pretty likely didn't know the parents at all and couldn't necessarily have spoken to you know whether or not they were miscast but it sounds like the two of you met steven spielberg's mother so i guess i don't know if you want to weigh in on the question and maybe you know add to the discourse but did you think it was a good performance did she match up to the energy i mean i know she's you know she was obviously presumably much older when you met her than she was in the film but what do do you think about that i mean like the
1: hairstyle was pretty spot on like like that sort of I don't even know if it was like a bob or a pixie cut, like that hair was like pretty accurate. And like the, I remember she used to wear like overalls quite a bit, like denim overalls. Hmm. So it was kind of accurate in that, that, yeah, in that, that regard. Yeah, that feels
0: inspirant. Yeah. I mean, she was,
1: she was definitely a character and unique. And I feel like Michelle Williams did a good job. Now, I guess my follow-up question to you, Harry, is were they miscast because they weren't Jewish? Is that, was that the complaint or just that they felt like it wasn't a good, I, I think it was just a criticism think, of the acting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, really? I mean I thought they were terrific in the film. We we could get into the Jewish piece later, but like I thought they did a pretty good job. I I you know Paul Dano does a good sort of like vanilla kind of guy like to kind of counterbalance her performance. I thought they were great performances.
2: Well, I think that um some of the some of the uh reviews of the film or maybe it was the interview with uh with uh, Spielberg himself in the times, the New York times, um, he talked about how he cast those two actors, not necessarily because they looked like his parents, mm-hmm. but because they're, he saw performances of theirs where he saw his parents in those performances. Oh, okay, nice. Um, so, you know, Michelle Williams has a, a very large body of work. Um, and one of the performances that he saw her in was, um, uh, that, Series on TV, which was Dawson's about Fossey. No, Fossey. Oh, uh, which was. I got about, really excited. Uh, I was. Like, I know. <laughs> well, he, I'm sure he's seen some of that too. Sure, he's, sure. Got, he's got kids who I'm sure have watched Dawson right? and yeah. Joey and sure, Casey sure. and all those kids. Um, but no, they. At, you know, Paul Dano, I don't remember exactly which which uh, portrayal he said reminded him of mm-hmm. of his dad. Um, but, you know, what you were saying about Paul Dano is he does like kind of like a like a battered every man, but with yeah. like a but with like a an uh, capacity for, uh, either an emotional breakdown or, um, or a violent streak that he's suppressing. Um, and in this case, yeah. I think it was like the wounded warrior of, uh, the former military man who had been, uh, uh, so I, who had, who had seen, you know, people die and all of that. So, and, and that of course, you know, the, the world war II, uh, fascination or fixation is, is also a very big influence for Spielberg.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good read. I hadn't picked, I I totally. Yeah. He did say it. Sammy said in the movie at some point, you know, this, I, I, I wanted to portray your war and I totally like had escaped me. I was like, Oh yeah, of course he's like a world war II vet. Anyway. Um, this is all like fascinating context to get into the film. What do you say, Harry? Do you think it's time we check out the IMDb summer and let everyone know what we're talking about?
0: Sure. so uh growing up in post-world war ii era arizona young sammy Fableman aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth i like that That's you know what good. i like about it it's obviously most people going into this movie know the context but not necessarily that it's the spielberg story and i i was talking and as someone who had seen the movie before me and he was just like, yeah, I was expecting it to be very Spielberg, but it really was just a coming of age story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that's what the movie is. You know, this right. does like the movie particularly ends, you know, not even at the beginning of his career, before the actual film career goes off. Like this story is just about young Sammy Fableman and I loved it for that.
2: I don't know if this tramples on your um, on your outline at all, um, but, yeah. I, you know, I think one of the things that I really wished I could do is go into this movie not knowing that it was Steven Spielberg's story. Mm, Okay. Um, Because I felt like it in some ways took me out of the film and kind of made me like look for those Easter eggs or those points where I'm like, oh, that's, that became ET or that became Close Encounters or, oh, was there a shark here? You know, I, so I was just, I was just kind of thinking about all of those things. Um, and I think it's a, it's a complicated space because it's not a straight biopic, you know, Ray, Mm -hmm. the Ray Charles story, you know, walk the line, um, it's a biographical drama with characters who are avatars of Spielberg's family. So they don't have to match exactly. Um, but the truth of, you know, of this kid coming of age and finding his craft really, and his mode of expression, his emotional expression, his understanding of the world through that kind of camera lens. I think that's, that's a great story on its own. It doesn't necessarily have to be Steven Spielberg's story. Um, But, you know, we know that it is. So we go into it with that and we say, oh, what, what a brilliant young kid this was. This is great. And then you're like, but it's Steven Spielberg. Of course he was brilliant. But then it's just like, you know, it's about the parents and how they either encourage or discourage his developing this clear gift for seeing the world through the camera. So, um, I, I did enjoy that uh, that element of it. um but there were a couple of times where I just wished I wasn't asking myself, did this really happen? Did this really happen? You know, all that right. kind of stuff.
1: I wanted to jump back to your point, Harry, because like I feel like I feel like I wish that movie actually didn't end where it ended. I wish we got kind of less family drama up top and like maybe extend out twenty minutes past that last shot. So we see him going into like making jaws. like I, that to me was like, honestly, where the film kind of came alive. Whereas like that sort of end part where he's like a fully developed, you know, post chatting with David Lynch is John Ford. Um, And um, you know, Esther, to your point, I feel like the fact that I do know it's Steven Spielberg, I'm kind of like grading the film on a curve somewhat. Like I'm already like, Oh, this is a Spielberg film. So I have to like it. But like I was saying, you know, I honestly felt, you know, this doesn't weigh into my, you know great of the film itself as a Jewish film but like parts of the film I was just like not so thrilled with I just felt they were like a little um what's the word I'm looking for indulgent and like it just felt kind of long in parts it kind of dragged a little bit um and I could see Harry's got steam coming out of his ears but it's true man that's just how I felt you know like I feel like because it's Steven Spielberg, we have to give it a little bit more credit than if someone else told the same story. So anyway, just to just to speak to both of your points. But go
0: ahead, Harry. Yeah, I look, you anticipated it a little bit, but yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I'm with Esther on this one that okay. I think the movie works so well, not in spite of Steven Spielberg. I mean, he directed it fantastically, mm-hmm. but... Yeah. I, I felt myself walking out of the theater and this is like what you were saying, Esther, about, you know, wanting to know what happened. And normally you walk out of a movie like that, like a Ray or a biopic or, or sure. a movie like that. And the first thing, you know, I, I tend to do is look up what actually happened, you know, especially mm-hmm. in the most magical moments of this movie when it's like, there's no way it was that perfect that he connected yeah. it, right? Then I'm uh-huh. thinking of scenes where, you know, he's he's showing his mother, you know, the the film and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in context when we run through the plot. And I was just thinking like, did this all go exactly like this? Was this kid so emotionally intelligent? How does he tell the story? And I, I didn't want to know the answer. I don't, I don't want to know the details, right. you know, that John Ford meeting. Like, that was just, it, it, I was thinking the whole time of that famous phrase, you know, about sort of newspapers, like, where there's truth versus legend, print the legend kind of thing, just yeah. like mythologize the story. and. I think that's what he's doing, Steven Spielberg. He's putting it through this frame of the fablemans because he's just telling the myth of his story. And I'm sure there's a lot of truth in terms of what motivated him to be who he was, what he saw in his parents, how he got, you know, to where he he obviously would become. But that story was framed the best way that he could in a very compelling, emotional, heartfelt movie. It was, mythological I mean, way, in, yeah, yeah, and yeah. In the, in the middle part, it literally becomes like a, a teenage comedy, like high school. Sure. you know comedy like 80s comedy kind of movie that just like it, it was just he was telling his story through movies and i just i i think it worked the best like that I, I didn't need to get any more obvious spielberg or any of those references i didn't need to see the dinosaur toy he had as a kid yeah sure 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 i get you
1: totally makes sense um what do you say with all this in mind what do you think we uh take a quick break and we come right back and then we jump into our plot does that sound good sounds good all right
2: i'm here for that
1: we'll be right back Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Esther Kostanowitz talking about the film The Fablemans. Harry, do you want to get us kicked off with the plot of the film?
0: The movie opens and a young Sammy Fableman goes with his parents to see Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth. And he's both mesmerized and scared by the movie, but specifically the train crash sequence in it. So for Hanukkah, he asks his parents for a model train set. And we have this great montage where he gets a new train each night and ultimately has a full... As a full train car, and uh, and he he assembles this this toy. So his mother Mitzi, who's played by Michelle Williams, as we mentioned, recognizes that what Sammy really wants is control over what he's afraid of. He's been kept up by nightmares of this train sequence, and she encourages him to recreate the film and recreate the crash sequence with his model train she gives him a camera and has him film it he does so he falls in love with filmmaking and through this opening montage we kind of witness him falling in love with movies and creating a lot of home videos with and for his family yeah I mean I, I love this sort of montage of like we go from
1: like very primitive kind of train accidents recreating that scene from the greatest show on earth uh to then like graduating to like mummy movies where they use the toilet paper and then they're using like ketchup and whatever to like recreate like a dentist scene. I thought it was really cute. And I think this is one thing, I don't know if it's a Jewish thing or not, but just like the his sort of progression as like a filmmaker going from like the very most basic camera and the most basic film, like he's creating to then sort of the end of the film where he's doing like slow motion shots and he's cutting shots together and really telling a story with like nice titles and everything. And it was kind of cool as an editor to kind of see the progression from something so basic to something that is, you know, evoking emotion and even making the jocks cry. So. Any thoughts on this first part, Esther?
2: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think it's really valuable to hear your your perspective as a film editor because, you know, obviously I I work from like story and character and you work from like you can appreciate the technical wizardry and mastery in a different way than than I can for sure. Um and I I don't know about you Harry I don't know about <laughs> but I know that you're already offended by this 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 uh, hot take and and we'll see <sighs> if we can uh, if we can offend you a little bit more before we're done because that's yes. that's part of the Talmud of like mm-hmm. discussion of films is that we can all encounter the same text and come away with you know kind of different perspectives. Um, So I'll say that, like, since we're going chronologically, I'll I'll address, you know, kind of the early the early Jewy moment in the film, which Mm -hmm. is uh, the approach to the house and, you know, which one is ours. It's the one without any lights. Right. So in you know, having seen this and the, it's the only dark house on the street um, and for Hanukkah, what he wants is Christmas light. I did a little bit of research because I remembered a story and I was trying to find it and I found it in a in a book called Stars of David, uh, which is a 2005, I think, or six book by uh, Abigail Pogrebin. Uh, she's a writer, for, wrote for the New York Times for many, many years. Um, and she interviewed a lot of uh, celebrities who were Jewish about their Jewish identity and i'm just going to read this cuz i i found the story and i think you'll find it uh you'll find it uh familiar so it says that uh he he likes christmas and he he likes hanukkah and christmas and that they do both in his home um and, and he called Christmas the one holiday I wished I could have partaken in every year I was growing up. And then she says his longing was especially acute as an eight year old in Haddon Heights, New Jersey. I would go to my dad and say, Dad, can't we put lights up? We're the only house on the block that doesn't have lights. And oh. my dad would say, we have a porch light. I said, Dad, you know what I mean? Our neighbors used to win these awards for decoration, yada, yada. Our neighborhood was like a light show and we were the black hole of Calcutta. Um, but my dad would never allow us to do anything. One time he said, "If you want to, we can put the menorah in the window." And I said, "No, no, no! Then people will think we're Jews." So um, you know, I think the the relationship with Judaism is at least for this young Sammy Fabelman, um, and it sounds like also for young uh, Steven Shmuel Spielberg that that Judaism was a liability. Um, It marked you as different and not in a good way. Um, And, you know, all of that is really, is really, you know, kind of one of the ways that Judaism is often portrayed on screen is like, not necessarily as a value system, but as a way of marking difference and outsiderness Mm -hmm. and like literal darkness in a sea of, light lighted homes, you know, just the visual of that, I'm sure, also appealed to the young Spielberg as a very resonant image. Um, you know, he has a an eye for these things.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: and I, I did like the the marking of time ta- the passage of time marked by Hanukkah candles. I thought that was really a, a fun little thing right. um because it also was much more joyful than you know approaching the darkened house. And so I, I really did like that. And I just feel like you know the the Judaism thing is something that that we've traced throughout the film mostly um mostly in uh I guess in New Jersey and then they moved to Arizona and then yep. it's Northern California right right so I that's the same Spielberg route as well and uh in those places the Judaism is different as well so um yeah I think that's that's what I want to say for now <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think you made a lot of great points. I mean, I'll, I'll start with the first one you made, which was about me being uh, upset by the whole editor creative read. But that—that's the movie, right? It, it's the—it's the relationship with Sammy's father and his mother. It's taking right. the creativity. Maraging it with the uh with the technical proficiency. Right? Exactly. So so I love that. Let let's keep that energy up. But um but I really liked what you were talking about, the, our sort of introduction to his Jewishness, because you know, we were talking about this at the beginning, you know, when you we are comparing it to a TV show, just you know, how much is the Jewishness really gonna drive the character, the growth, the depth? And I I think you kind of isolated what I what I think is the biggest the biggest influence of his Jewishness on his life. And it's really that engendering that kind of isolation. And, and I think a big threat of this movie, and we'll talk about this in some later scenes, but is is Sammy's emotional detachment from a lot of things and, and the way that he always has to isolate himself in order to be the filmmaker. He's the person who's directing when everyone's acting on screen. He's the one standing in the back in the projection room while everyone's watching his yes, movie. Yes, He's the, right. He's the student in high school. That's, you know, isolated for his Jewishness. Loner, so introducing yeah. that to us at the beginning, I think is is really how the Jewishness is used, which I agree with you is is, is not necessarily the most positive read, right? That's the association that, that I've definitely seen, especially in a lot of, you know, it's, it's the holiday season and it's the Hanukkah Christmas time of year. And that's kind of the read you see in any Jewish story that takes place that's centered on this time is that isolation. But what I did really like is that the movie, I think introduces us to the Jewishness both on that on that one front of this sort of recognizable to the audience, look, they're the isolated community. They also do a little bit of healthy exposition in the car there, kind of explaining that, oh, you're you're not gonna have Christmas, you're the Jew. But but then what the film does, which I also really enjoyed, was uh, once it's once it's done kind of explaining to the to what we'll call the lay audience, you know, what, what it means to be Hanukkah Jewish, gives us a little bit of that. I think it starts to up its game a little bit. I think when you have that sequence, which you spoke about, which I loved when they kind of edit us through the eight nights of Hanukkah, you see them lighting another candle, he gets another right. train. They do a lot of shortcuts that if you're not so familiar with Hanukkah, with the brachas, with, you know, how that all works, you might not have gotten immediately. And that was a little bit of just Steven Spielberg trusting his audience to say, this is, I'm just going to give you an actual slice of the Jewish experience, something Daniel, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, but we always call out is when they say an actual bracha or say a Jewish prayer in a, in a film, you know, how accurate is it? And I thought they did a pretty good job. You know, they didn't handhold, they didn't blame it, maybe translate it or just make it more accessible, so to speak. I think they just played it for how he must've experienced it. So I like the way that it navigated his Jewishness in those early sequences. Yeah, I I loved your read
1: of sort of being that other, you know, both like as a Jew, but then also as like the filmmaker, I was totally going to make that connection. And I'm glad that you did of just like these solitary scenes of whether it's him editing in his room by himself or like sitting in the hallway locker area by himself or just like completely detached from the film because at this point you've already seen it a hundred times. So you hate it and everyone's laughing and everyone's enjoying it. And you're just noticing the mistakes in the film. Like that is, (laughs) that is real. Spoken like an editor. I can relate to that. Um, but yeah, I thought the, I thought the, the beginning part was great with the lighting of the menorah and things like that. I did notice a little bit with Paul Dano, you know, there was like a little learning curve there, but I'm not going to (laughs) nitpick so early in the, in the film, uh, summary. I did want to see if we could, um, Move it on to the next beat, if that's all right. Because it's a long movie. Uh, Sammy's father, Bert, who's played by Paul Dano, announces that he gets a new engineering job and that they're moving to Phoenix. But Mitzi plays with him to find a job for Benny, who is uh, Bert's best friend and co-worker at... I believe he works at GE, and then he moves over to... I forget the other company, but... Or maybe it's... He eventually, yeah, eventually ends up at IBM. It's IBM, yeah. But it's like GE, but then there's some other... First company, I name is it escapes me now, but Seth Rogen is is played uh, is playing Uncle Benny, and that's the important part. Yeah, exactly, and. you know, so they move to Phoenix and uh, Sammy joins the Boy Scouts and they attend the film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is directed by John Ford, which will be important later in the film. Uh, so inspired by watching this film again, Sammy stages and films a Western uh, starring some of his other Boy Scouts. And they premiere it in front of the rest of the troop, as well as Sammy's uh, family, who's like all amazed. Um at this point, I think he's graduated, if, if we're doing a camera count. So at the beginning of the film, we have his dad's borrowed Brownie camera, which is like an eight millimeter camera. And I think he's moved up one level to like a next camera that his parents have purchased for him. And I think he rents an editing machine to make this happen. But, um, you know, there's a lot of cool editing tricks that he picks up, I believe. His mom is playing piano in this in this time and uh, she steps on a, uh, like a sheet music with her heel and that inspires him to edit the film in such a way so that when he's shoot, when the people are shooting, it's like, uh, you know, shows like a flash of light. And that really like wows him because after he's edited, it wows the audience because after watching it, like I said, over and over again, he sees that it's sort of falling flat. And so he decides to add in this sort of little flourish, but um, yeah. So this is uh, Sammy's first public display of the film and everyone's on board with it and really excited to see it.
2: One one of the things I really like is that he seems to really thrive in Phoenix. Like mm-hmm. as you know embarrassed as he was of being Jewish in 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 New Jersey, which is strange cuz I'm yeah. from New Jersey, so a lot of so. Jews in New Jersey. I mean, yeah, um but in Phoenix, he seems to really have found his own with this with this uh, Boy Scout troop. People follow him. He does. They do whatever he wants them to. You know, mm-hmm. he casts them things. They follow along. They take direction, um, you know, and he's really like a, a leader um, uh, at the same time. He's doing it all. You know, he's very single minded. And like, yes, you know, it's it's one of the things that that you were talking about before, Um, about you know how he just does it like kind of removed and behind the camera it reminded me of mark cohen the character in rent um mm-hmm. who is also accused by his friends of like you know burying himself in his work and only seeing things through the camera lens cuz right. he doesn't know how to engage with life in a real way only through the lens and so i think that that's that's also something that I, that occurred to me when i was watching this performance of um of of the young uh, uh Sammy Fableman. um totally and yeah and This is something I noted on the podcast with Aaron um, when we talked about our excitement that this movie was coming. We didn't do a a deep dive. But um, Fableman, I feel like, is also like a almost parallel name to Spielberg because a fable and a spiel sounds like they might be connected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, man, Berg, it's all part of the Jewish suffix game. So, um, you know, that was just something that I that I. I Always saw, I was like, Oh, it's called the Fableman's. Is it okay? Is it called the story, the storybergs? Next, is it right. called? <laughs> yeah, no, anyway. So, um, I did love that. Um, I also really like uh Gabriel LaBelle's performance. Uh, he played the uh, the adolescent Spielberg. Are we there yet? Yeah. Or, yes, we are. Mm-hmm. Um, he also played the young John Bernthal character in American Gigolo, uh, which I don't know if if anybody saw, but um, he's he's a very likable young actor. And I really liked his performance in this in this movie.
0: Yeah, I, I think he's definitely got that sort of cult of personality very early. And, and that's really what being the director is. It's taking that. We saw him as the sort of isolated figure within his family to, you know, whatever success that brought him in the home movie era. But now as we have graduated to he's really putting on, I mean, they're these short, silent films, so it's not anything too large scale yet. But he's he's in this position now where he's got to kind of be in charge and he has to be behind the camera. He's directing his friends. He's clearly you know, he's leading them. We have that great sequence where they're going to see the movie and they're all on bicycles together. And I don't remember if he's in the front, but you kind of get the idea that he's the one who dragged them to see this movie. And I mean, first of all, you get this great. I know we said we weren't going to poke at the movie and see the inspirations, but you know, you're thinking E.T. You see all these kids. Exactly. You see all them on their bikes together. But I think this begins everything that we're saying about the detachment that he now feels like one of the one of the threads also in that moment, we, we see him kind of bike past, um, like there's a girl in their grade, I think. And all his friends are kind of joking with him, teasing with him that he doesn't talk to her and that he tried to talk to her. And it's almost like what you were saying about him being the director. All he can see is kind of what's wrong with the shot, right? She has this sort of booger in her nose. That's how they, they joke with it. But you get the sense he's not making that emotional connection because he's, He's thinking differently. He's thinking art. He's thinking creatively. He creates these movies. I think we learned that he starts making a lot of shorts without any women in them. So I, I I think we're picking up on a lot of the threads that kind of come to a head at later scenes are already happening in this early sequence.
2: I think that's right. Yeah. I I I I mean, I think it would be interesting if we all made movies of what we remember our lives to have been during adolescence. And uh wonder if it would bear any resemblance to a documentary made of us during that time, because it's always, you know, the personal lens on your own experience is, is a, is a, can be a really harsh one. Um, and, you know, the, uh, what a, what a objective camera sees uh, may not be what you see. And, you know, that's why it's always, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, uh, but every once in a while where you, you, somebody takes a picture of you and you're like, that's not me. And it, sometimes it's like, it, that's not me because is that really what I look like? I should really stay inside forever. And sometimes it's, um, it's like, wow, I didn't know I could look like that. Or that's a really interesting emotion that was captured. And that's yeah. somebody who's behind the camera. That's not something I can do with a selfie, you know, cause it's, there's a layer of self consciousness.
1: There's like a flash, like when his parents are getting divorced, like towards the end of the film and he sees them in the mirror and he imagines that he's like filming them getting divorced, which is just like, he's, he's sort of seeing everything. Like you said, through this camera lens and sort of seeing how cinematic it would be if I like filmed my parents and even on the camping trip, which we'll get to in a second, like, you know, he's filming that and he's not really like experiencing it as much. There's very few scenes maybe like the swimming scene and like a little bit of the kumbaya singing by the fire that he's actually like sort of engaged in what's going on.
2: And they make the point early on with that first, you know, kind of obsession with the train, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that what he's really trying to do is control the things that frighten him. Uh, So seeing that train like get hit the, the car get hit by a train on a train right. track in a movie was just like, so ter- it really rattled him. Right. And the question of how could he control that feeling is if he could understand how it was achieved visually. And so I think that that's the lens that we're meant to understand. He takes in terms of um, interpreting these things that are really just too big to deal with um, whether it's bullying or, you know, war or, or which is I guess Bullying is a kind of war, um, but or 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 girls like you know just not knowing how to talk to to girl to, to young women. So I think that and and certainly once his um you know once his parents start having trouble kind of trying to capture parts of uh trying to capture the relationship so that maybe he can save it, um but also just so that he can feel some sort of control over what he's seeing and experiencing.
0: Yeah, I I think that's so interesting, you know, talking about actually trying to save it and and whether he wants to affect change. Because when I was thinking about that early scene with the train and and kind of when he refilms the the crashing sequence, in some ways, I expected he wanted to get the train so that he could film a sequence where the train doesn't crash, where the car drives out of the way and maybe things are all okay. But that's not what he's trying to do with his movies. He's not trying to play, you know, magic imagery trick and, and rewrite the narrative. It's, it's almost the way that he can process it's, you know, controlling for him is just about processing what's happening. And when, like you were mentioning, Daniel, and I was excited to talk about that scene when we get up to it. So we'll cheat now and then go back to it. But mm-hmm. when he's when he imagines himself filming his parents telling them about the divorce, he's not stepping in. He's not thinking, how can we change this? What could have been done? But it's just let me process this with my camera and then maybe later get to it. And I think that's his relationship with the young girls we were talking about, where at this point in his in his young life, he's not processing he's he's almost gathering information, and you know we'll see what happens obviously later with his relationships. but it's it's very observant. It's very much based in in reaction, right? And mm-hmm. then reaction shots become a huge plot point in the film later on,
1: right. You film first and then you edit and then you create the story. you know, you have to like process it all. Um, do you want to talk about the camping scenes, Harry?
0: Following this whole Boy Scout scene where he shows the film, we we follow the Fablemans as they go on a camping trip. So first we see in the car on the way there, Bert and Sammy have an important conversation about Bert becoming a little bit more critical of all the money that Sammy is spending on what he calls an expensive hobby that's not going to produce anything real. But at the same time, they try to connect over what sammy is trying to do but it still sets the stage for a little bit of their strife later on but once they actually arrive at the campsite we see the fabelmans they're having fun they're going on these big swings and having a great old time on this camping on this camping site and and one scene i want to call out is they sit down by the campfire and i wanted your help the two of you if you recognize the song or the i I called it almost like gramen esque and i I want to say yiddish i don't want to tell it might be another language russian could it be russian it didn't sound yiddish to me all right. So maybe that was my Jewish lens working a little too hard. Because I, I feel like know. Seth
1: Rogen was like making fun of some of the jokes around like the, uh, you know, he was like improvising a little bit and doing like Russian references in it. So that was my assumption. I could be wrong. Though.
2: I, I, I'm a little unclear as to the background of this family, because there was moments where um, I think the mother was speaking to her mother-in-law and possibly Hungarian. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. I don't I don't speak Hungarian. I don't speak Yiddish, but I know what Yiddish sounds like and yeah. that didn't sound like Yiddish to me. So the question is it is it Czech? Is it Russian? Is it Hungarian? Yeah. It's yeah. it's something like that. It's you know kind of like Eastern European language or it's something that is a gibberish that's supposed mm. to sound like Eastern European <laughs> language. But I can't right. imagine Steven Spielberg would do a gibberish. He would probably go for authenticity. So I'm sure it was an actual language, um, but it wasn't one that I recognized. And so therefore, I don't actually remember the song that they were that they were you know. using by the campfire. So and, you know, I think that also, you know, it's it's just it's just in theaters like in the last you know, a couple of weeks. So, like, if we were doing this in a year, we would have had an opportunity to to watch it again or to rewind. But we we didn't have that opportunity. So, this is all based on a, or at least for me, it's all based on a single single viewing of it, and I didn't take any notes. So, uh, right, yeah, it is coming it
1: out. It is coming out on the thirteenth of December on streaming. So, it'll be after this recording. But if anyone wants to pause our podcast, go watch the movie and come back and watch. You know listen to this. I think that'd be great. Sorry, Harry, go ahead.
0: Uh, I was going to say, I agree. I'm I'm sure there's already, if not yet, there will be a transcription of exactly what was being said in what language, but, uh, but it was just a very charming scene. And the biggest takeaway other than I think the Eastern European roots or wherever that comes from that language was also that Benny is, is bonding with the children, bonding with the family very well at this campsite. So um, that night after they have this whole uh, campfire, there's this uh, important scene where Mitzi kind of enters this, I don't know what to call that sort of state of mind, just very whimsical, very spiritual almost, and just starts dancing around. You know, if you've seen the movie, you know, obviously, but sort of like flailing her arms a little bit, dancing very slowly and her... Uh, uh, And Benny is very encouraging. He tells Sammy, he says, get this shot. And Sammy says, I don't think there's enough lights. So then they have, they turn the car lights on and she kind of dances slowly there. And there's this moment where Sammy's younger sister is is pleading with her mom to stop because between the car headlights and the nightgown she's wearing, her outfit has become a little bit see-through, but... Benny, on the other end, is is trying to push her away and 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 very much encouraging this. And we get a a little cut to Bert on the side while he sits silently, and it just it upsets the dynamic a little bit. It starts to shift. I think the the perfect kind of uh, the the perfect family that we've seen up until this point, and, and Sonna sets things off a little bit. So so that's kind of that big camp that, that camping scene that uh, anchors the center of the film.
1: I love how Bert is like trying to explain to the kids about the wonders of the engineering of how the sticks all fit together and they make this perfect campfire and no one is interested in the least bit. They all nope. just want to go play and, you know, uh, go play with mom and, and Benny, who's like the fun uncle. Um, but yeah. yeah, definitely fun to sort of see Sammy, uh, and, and the gang outside of their normal surroundings kind of doing something in the great outdoors.
2: I will say that, um, you know and this is so it maybe speaks to Michelle Williams's performance a little bit um and I don't know if we're if we're dissecting the performances just yet but um it's you know I, I, f- I feel like her performance was a little bit over the top and I know that this character is supposed to be very very much like kind of larger than life and right. like ethereal and uh you know I, I use the words whimsical um I I would say a kind of slightly unstable, um, I would say an artist, I would say, uh, felt kind of trapped in her own life and only at various points experienced moments of release and, um, and, uh, freedom. And I think that the, um, the fire scene is, is one of those where she kind of feels very artistic. She feels, um, attractive uh she feels um kind of like an object in a in in a way that she finds empowering or she feels free and um you know even what you, what you said is like what she's wearing is it's a very it's very diaphanous and like you can really see see yeah. right through it and um and you know her approach is very is like she doesn't care um she's just use of the word flailing but like you know I would say more like really feeling her body and expressing it in her limbs and just kind of like people who are listening can't see that I'm I'm doing something (laughs) that looks like swimming actually but um (laughs) but uh she did it better (laughs) um but I think that you know her her performance is really so um I think oh you were that before you said Bob, I think it's a page boy. I think that's the name of the hairstyle. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, So, I mean, it's just like, she's very given to uh, shifts of mood uh, in a way that, you know, she ends up like going to a psychi- psychologist at some point, um, but like she really does need some assistance um, and I don't think she gets it in her house and so being out in nature was a freeing thing for her but um it also like as you said is is a point of kind of uh it's like they went on vacation as a family and they return maybe less so um, and so it's an important kind of uh moment um but you know i don't know i th- i i whenever i watch a movie i i wonder who am i in this movie right um and i don't know if this this is a game other people play but for me it's never the it's never the main character. It's always some, some weird side character. So for me, it was his sister who was like trying to get her to stop dancing because you know, she was so like, that's, that's kind of like the, the sister was like, come on, just do, do the normal thing, you know, or, or we can see, we can see through your dress. Like it's, it's embarrassing. Come on. And so that's, that's kind of like, um, you know, I think that, I think that the character, um, I think that the Sammy Fableman character is 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 probably more in line with what his sister thinks than what his uh so fa- than what then what Uncle Benny thinks he should do. Um it's he seems like a very reluctant filmmaker in that moment. Um and I think he senses that something's not right about it. Um although he yeah. you know is still too young and hasn't really seen what that something wrong is yet. But right. he will.
0: Yeah, I I I really agree with that. I think that scene and that performance specifically, I've been thinking about it a lot because, like you said, it's very big, it's very outsized. It's it's bordering on—I don't want to call it overacting. I think it's just acting very large. And I've been trying to figure out, you know, as someone who generally prefers subtlety, you know, what to make of that. And I think it it fits into both the balance we were talking about of that the sort of contrast that Bert and Mitzi represent you know, versus, you know, the sort of very clinical engineering, very thoughtful versus like really this representation of just art almost unleashed, right? This like unbridled, just creative expression. And I think it's it's a combination of that paired with what we said earlier about this film really is, it's Steven Spielberg, right? It's Sammy Fableman, really Steven Spielberg, but mythologizing his story. And this is how he remembers his mother. So it's not in the particulars of what might have been maybe a more grounded, more realistic Expression. It's she was this artistic force in my life that I think everything you were saying is correct, Esther, that she's kind of bound and and feels very like she doesn't have room to express herself. She needs to be outdoors in nature to kind of have that moment of being unleashed. And that's something that I think Benny, more so than Bert, recognizes and embraces about her. And and, you know, spoiling a little bit later when we ultimately get to the divorce, which is not quite a spoiler because we've mentioned it a bunch of times already. But I think. Bert recognizes that he was too dis- different from her. He couldn't offer her that. And when she decides she needs to go back to Phoenix, it's because everything we were saying, she is this artistic force that needs to be egged on by someone who's encouraging, who says, no, keep dancing, get the lights on you, have your moment. And uh, and yeah, and, and I think that's just born out of, uh, of how Sammy or how Steven Spielberg really remembers, you know, who his mom was and who she was as an influence on who he would become.
1: Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, does the scene, does her dancing scene not come like when they're discussing potentially moving and then, or does them discussing like does Bert, I'm sorry, does Benny and Bert discussing their move to, uh, to Arizona, I believe, or to California, are they not discussing this like by the fire and she's in the tent and then she comes out and dances or that happens kind of after the dance? If, if it comes afterward, okay, don't worry about it. I was, I was trying to make a point and drawing on the fact that like, she often does stuff to be the center of attention. And I wondered if this was sort of like a decoy or not a decoy, but like a distraction where they're like talking talkless about like moving and making this next big change in their life. And she's like, Hey, look at me. I'm dancing. Let's pay attention to me. I'm the artist here. You know,
0: I wondered if if that, if that could be a possible read on it. I, I think you're onto something in terms of the timing of all of this. You know, it's mm-hmm. not just that she's outside of nature. I mean, we learn later on because Sammy captures a lot of this when he's filming the trip, because we didn't mention this, but he's been filming most of what's happening on the trip. But we learn later on that it seems like her relationship with Benny kind of comes to a head on this trip. We see in the later footage, they start stealing glances, holding hands. He puts his arm around her at some point. So I think all of that energy is coming to a head and all of the anxiety around that major change. So if this is her way of, kind of releasing i think that inner conflict that inner turmoil she's feeling where she's torn between this and doesn't want to disrupt the family i mean that that's that's definitely the read i get of her later on that she never wants to disrupt this idyllic family unit we've seen in the first half of the film it's just almost overwhelming so i think it's more of her response to that major change but in some ways that's definitely tied to the move to california and when that does happen i mean that i think that's what really pushes her to the breaking point later on
2: Yeah. I have an English major observation to make that's kind of based on um, something Harry said. So um, I remember when I was like in 10th grade and they taught us about Shakespeare, um, that one of the things that they taught us about with symbolic geography. So for instance, um, you know, where it's Egypt is a place of magic, Rome is a place of of uh of logic, right? So the forest is a place where everything, you know, crazy can happen. Um and I think that the symbolic geography of um of Mitzi being a force of nature and being really attracted to nature's forces. Um, We see that with the fire sequence. We also see that when she decides to chase into like a hurricane or a tornado, like she sees a tornado coming and she takes the kids and puts them in a car and drives right, toward it and then realizes that it's actually dangerous and then turns back. Um, But I think that kind of play that she does with trying to um, conquer or either to be one with nature or to conquer it, um, but I feel or to be swept away by it. But I think she does have this kind of um, energy that's attracted to things elementally. Um, You know, you've got the wind and the fire, you know what else, you know, could make the, you know, earth and earth and, um, you know, whatever the air. Right. So I don't, I don't know. Are there elements? There are four elements in there somewhere, but, um, but anyway, the point of like, I think this, the idea of nature, um, as something that both traps Mitzi and makes her feel free and connected to the universe. I think that there is definitely something there to be played with and overanalyzed.
1: You know, Esther, I love what you said about that, you know, Mitzi being like this force of nature, you know, a bit, a bit of a stretch here, but you know, she is kind of intense when it comes to Sammy's swim lessons. And I think she gets super mad at him. And so she hits him. So maybe we could stretch that and say that it's like somewhat related to water in that, you know, other element. I don't know if it really works that way or not, but Hey, this is juice on film and we always stretch things quite a bit.
2: I, I do think that the, the, you know, the, the fire, and the wildness and the uncontrollability of elements i think is is really is really very uh, very much characterizes mitzi
1: totally and she loves it so much spoiler alert that she ends up back in phoenix i mean it has such a a strong place in her heart that that's where in addition to having benny be there she just kind of needs to be in in arizona you know Um, And
0: then we didn't even point this out, but I think Bart, you know, as we've been saying, kind of represents the opposite, but he's really characterized not by nature, but I mean, a by technology computer, right? The exact opposite. But even the way that, especially computing existed at that time is sort of very fixed structure, very analytical, very numbers based, you know, the way they talk about the, the, there's that great scene in the beginning where they talk about how, you know, we're, uh, Benny is kind of like hyping up Bert and he's like, Oh, he figured out how to get these machines that normally have to reset the things to kind of, you know, work and loop together, but it's all very focused in together. It's all very tightly controlled and it's, it's uh, it really is the opposite. After this um,
1: awesome life changing for many people's camping trip, uh, Mitzi's mother, unfortunately passes away. She's kind of overcome with grief. Um, and, you know, Bert, reaches out to Sammy and he pleads to him to make a home video from the camping trip in order to cheer her up. Um, You know, Sammy realizes that this is sort of at the same time as when he's planning to shoot his world war II Epic film, his next one. Um, So he's kind of wrestling with that, but all the while uncle Boris played by Judd Hurst shows up and sort of amazes Sammy and the family with the stories of the circus. He was a, A lion tamer in the circus. And then he kind of made his way into Hollywood, into the pictures. And he kind of explains to Sammy, you know, all sorts of things. He passes on so much knowledge, but right before bed, Boris lectures Sammy on the sacrifices an artist needs to make and the costs to the family. You know, he says something like art and family will tear you apart. I loved it. Uh, Sammy works on uh, the home video after talking with Boris and thinking about things for quite a bit. And he notices... You know as he's kind of like going through the film slowly but surely back and forth back and forth he notices his mother and benny kind of ex- exchanging glances holding hands and like even like stealing a kiss i think um so he grows kind of like cold towards mitzi um ignoring her and benny after the screening of of his world war ii epic film um and You know, after weeks of fighting, like I was saying before, uh, Mitzi accidentally slaps Sammy on the back and kind of leaves a handprint. And he says, All right, come with me. I'm going to show you this footage. So he, in in a sort of like visual um, homage or a, a visual reference to his initial screening in the closet, he puts her in this closet and she screens it by herself. And they sort of cry and he promises not to tell anyone, but they have this kind of like intense moment. Uh, But we'll pause here and kind of collect some thoughts on these very heavy and very meaningful scenes.
2: Right. It's like, it's kind of like, a blooper reel that isn't funny. It's like right. just a yeah. super cut of the most awkward moments that her son witnessed between her and uncle Benny. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And also just to tag onto our, our discussion from just, you know, a few minutes ago about, about the, the, the wild elements of miss of myth of Mitzi, not Misty, miss, I can't say it. <laughs> Mitzi, um, is that one of her, she also enjoys this enclosed space with her son, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a space that has, where she first like saw his talent and uh, first really saw the window of film as his way of looking at the world. And that, that closet is a very small enclosed, intimate space that she's in with him. Um, And I think it's, an important emotional, I have some emotional closet. I don't know, but maybe, I mean, because, you know, that's where she first learned that he was going to be, that he was super talented. And here's where she sees that he's seen something that no one else saw. Um, And those are two kind of, uh, two kind of facets of the same diamond is that, you know, it's like she, she he sees a lot and he's talented, but that means that because he's talented, he sees a lot. Right. So. Um, right. so and I think that that closed uh, environment is very different than the wild outdoors, which she feels called to the, you know, the big openness of Arizona as symbolic geography to mm-hmm. tag back to English major corner, as we say. Um So. Um, yeah, I think that's all, it's all interesting. And honestly, none of this is in my notes that I, that I prepare. like, this is all just coming back to me when dome, we're talking huh? about wow. it. So, awesome. um, so yeah, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating to be able to do that with you two, you know, just to see how much I actually do remember, uh, through my own, uh, these two camera lenses here, that are in the, live in the front of my face.
0: Very cool. I think I, I think that's what this movie's all about. I think that's the power of seeing your life connecting to your emotions from this other perspective, from looking through the camera. I mean, that's exactly how. Sammy is getting to revisit and reframe and recontextualize, you know, things that he might not have picked up. Maybe he did notice, maybe it wasn't so clear to him on that trip. And and that's exactly what we're doing. I wanted to point out, I think the two scenes you were talking about, Daniel, first of all, Uncle Boris showing up in that oh, pivotal conversation. And to me, that was the most interesting part of the movie or really when it changed gears, because I think a lot of what we've been talking about of the, the sort of opposing forces we've been talking about of, you know, nature and and art versus science and structure was everything that's already been famously part of the uh, Steven Spielberg mythos, so to speak. And th- mm-hmm. and that's kind of stuff that I expected to see that I knew was going to be there. But when Uncle Boris explains this, this very shocking, I think, revelation that if you're going to pursue art, right, if you're going to go all in on art, it requires sacrifice to family. It's something that feels so out of place in the Steven Spielberg biopic, so to speak, because he's someone who is so successful at telling stories about nuclear families and about bringing, you know, has such an emotional core to a lot of his movies. And I think in the context of the movie, it inspires the scene that comes after it because uncle Boris tells him you you have to choose between art or family. And only then does he say, okay, I'll put together this family movie for my mother because I'm going to go down the family route. Like I, I, I can delay my, my artistic thing family is more important to me and what happens when he decides okay i'm going to go down the family route he uncovers the surprise that ultimately leads to the unraveling of his family it's as much as he's trying to pursue his his camera career with you know and maintain family in there i think for all the reasons we've discussed earlier in the episode about the way that you know thinking as a director creates this emotional detachment and just you know how that changes the way you see the world but ultimately the movie I think proposes that it's not so possible. It's not so feasible to embrace both. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but when Sammy eventually does put down the camera and stops filming, I think it's because he's, he recognizes what uncle Boris said to be true and he's trying his hardest to commit fully to family. But, you know, we know Steven Spielberg, the artist just can't get away with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I relate to this sort of art versus family conundrum all the time. I feel like, you know, yeah, let's 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 uh that's a very special episode of jews on film but like i feel like you know uh, it's it's difficult you know like trying to say like all right i'm gonna like do a 48-hour film festival and i'm gonna like you know spend two dinner times and bedtimes and away from the family and to just go make a horror movie with my friends and it's like it, it's 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 i related to to that struggle a lot i feel like uncle boris has like so many pearls of wisdom and he just like drops all these truth bombs on sammy and it it just kind of for me it kind of came out of left field but it was so uh enjoyable to have this sort of like prophet type figure come in and deliver the goods um from from judd hirsch and you know also the fact that he like tore his shirt and he was talking about mourning and introducing all this stuff i just loved it all and you know and and the fact that he like talked about old hollywood and he's going to, you know, this is the first of many lessons that Sammy gets from people in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, kind of Boris sort of downplays it. Like Sammy has a sort of like wonderment about making movies and films. And as we can see in the World War II film, he is getting better at it like that. I love that scene of him like talking to the, to the G.I. actor who's like this jock. And he's like really getting him so... Worked up that he, the the GI the the jock character is like crying and just like totally getting lost in the scene. So, Sammy's leveling up as he's accumulating all this knowledge and all this good stuff.
0: I just also want to you know I'm happy you mentioned around Uncle Boris the the moments of Shiva. He tears Korea and he makes a big deal of it. And and like I I enjoyed in the beginning of the film doesn't really take the time to, you know, exposit about it, explain exactly what's going on. He just makes the point to Sammy. He says, Sammy's like, you could sleep in my bed if you want. I'll find a place to sleep. He's like, nope, I'm mourning. I'm in Shiva. I'm sleeping on the floor. And, you know, this is Jews on film. We've been so lost, I think, and not lost, but we've been going down these, I think, incredible reads of just the actual emotional dynamics of the movie. But we can't forget who I, Uncle Boris, who I really think is the most recognizably Jewish figure in the entire film and that whole sequence and just seeing him come with his, you know, old country accent and just bringing in, you know, there were a couple, you know, meshuggahs and, and lines like that, that I definitely remembered writing down, but, um, but he, he really brings in that energy and, and kind of showcases the, uh, the lineage of, of Sammy Fableman.
2: He comes in and he's like a, he's, he's like a medley of influences. Like he's got like this like old world kind of like, you know, New immigrant thing, but he also and he also has the bootstrapping thing, but he also has the artist thing and he also has the Jewish thing. So like all of those things really are an important exposure for Sammy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that his you know, that's where we often see on film or, you know, on, on the on the small screen is that a, a lost relative, an older relative comes back in and deposits some Judaism. Um, and so I yeah. think that that's kind of what he did here. And, you know, Judd, Judd, I always have to I always have to stop to think if it's Hirsch or Nelson. Judd Hirsch uh, <laughs> is 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 like you said, one of these really identifiably Jewish actors who plays Jewish characters very frequently. Um whereas occasionally too. And um, you know, I think he, you know, he did what he was supposed to do in this, in this role. I felt that the monologue was just, if we're going to be critical, I can't believe yeah. I'm criticizing Steven Spielberg, but like, um, I felt like for me that monologue was, was too much and too over the top. Um, and you know, I, it's not really, uh, it's not really the most subtle of criticisms to say that, a uh, that a, uh, a performance is over the top. But for me, it's like, am I thinking, Am I getting lost in this character as he's portrayed or am I saying, oh, this is a Judd Hirsch monologue, you know, and, and it seemed like a Judd Hirsch monologue, which is not a terrible thing to have. But it just it took me out of it, actually. Gotcha. Um, and I think a lot of people are saying that he should get a, an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And like, I, may, I, I'm sure he will. But like, you know, I don't know. I I I, I was mixed on it.
0: Yeah, the the way you're describing how he just sort of shows up reminds me we don't really know who he is. We haven't heard of this character before he comes. We kind of get that glimpse of him the night before because Mitzi is awoken in her dreams by, you know, a a call from her dead mother. This kind of, you know, this nightmare she's obviously having where she's her mother tells her, don't let in this guest. And then we don't. And then the next morning we see uh, Uncle Boris show up to the car and then Mitzi kind of recognizes, oh, and she, she exposits to the children and to the audience, of course. She says, oh, that's my uncle. That was my mother's brother. That must Don't be the person in. he didn't want in. Don't let him yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. He he chose art. He went in this other direction and abandoned our family. Like, he really comes in as this almost device you know, he shares all this wisdom with Sammy, really sends him on the emotional journey. And and like I'm saying, this was, in my opinion, some of the most profound part of the film. So he really just becomes the voice of maybe these ideas that that the film wanted to work in about the sacrifices of Arden family and then leaves the next morning and disappears for the rest of the film. Right. And I don't want to join your you know, I'm I'm hesitant to join your train, Esther, of maybe being too critical of, of this one scene. But in some ways. He really is this this almost like angelic figure. Let's call him an angel. Maybe we'll call this a positive Jewish reference. But this almost angelic figure shows up, gives over some important wisdom to Sammy that really will dictate his future decisions. You know, we'll, we'll trace that throughout the rest of the film. And then he kind of disappears. I mean, it's, it's somewhere between what? deus ex machina and angels. That's, right. That's what I was right. saying.
2: It's like the Jew ex machina. Is ah. that like, you know, he somebody... Uh, the crane deposited him into the scene so that he could be all Jewy and kind of bring it all together. And then he says, peace, I'm out. Um, and, and then we don't see him. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that there is definitely something to that.
1: I mean, it's like this on this, you know, Sammy's on this journey to becoming a filmmaker. And like, I feel like in these like video games or whatever you like meet in these RPGs or, you know, the role-playing games or whatever, you like encounter a certain person and you get a certain weapon and then you kind of level up and you're able to like tackle the next thing. And I feel like he gets his stuff from Boris and then that enables him to make his World War II epic and to connect with the people and to to be sort of inspired and to really, I, I thought the... Filmmaking scenes and seeing Sammy go from like train to cowboy movie to World War II movie and to just kind of leveling up to the ditch day film like he just gets better every time and I'm and all of it is kind of like informed about like from what we're seeing and I and I love that about it yeah.
2: I think sure. it's also true to the, um, to whatever adolescent stage he's in, you know, if you think about, uh, what kids generally, how they progress through their toys, you know, from trains, right. uh, to Westerns, to war, to, you know, you know, kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, and then you go to, I hope that wasn't too plosive for the mic. Um, okay. <laughs> and, and then moving forward into where I think we're, uh, we will eventually get to uh is like his his you know his dealing with girls and uh right. the jocks and the bullying and all of those th- things that are a little bit more mature even as they are also adolescent
1: exactly that's such a perfect segue esther harry do you want to uh get us on to uh
0: let's get us to california shall we
1: california here we come so
0: uh Exactly. So, this Arizona adventure ends when uh, Bird announces that they're going to move to California. He's got yet another job. This time, unfortunately, he can't bring Benny along. So, he's going to be going alone. They have this emotional goodbye. Uh, We get this great scene where Benny buys Sammy a camera. Like you were saying, Daniel levels up. He buys him this new camera as a parting gift. But Sammy reluctantly accepts it, I think, just between the ill will he might have for Benny right now and also the way that in some ways, I would say film has let him down a little bit because it exposed right. so much and, and disrupted his family. He's he's entering this phase where he's stepping away from filmmaking for a little bit. So we follow Sammy as he arrives at his new high school and he's immediately bullied by a group of anti-Semitic jocks. They call him Bagelman, they they hang a bagel in his locker, they, you know, one of them punches him in the nose and they all collectively beat him up. Um there's this moment where one of the bullies basically Sammy had seen one of the bullies' girlfriends or one of the bullies, Logan, kissing another girl. So he admits to the girlfriend basically that he saw her boyfriend, Logan, cheating with someone else. And that kind of causes a rift in their relationship. So Logan basically bullies Sammy into meeting with the girlfriend privately and just telling her that everything he said was a lie. So we have this great scene where he meets with them and not only does he talk to Logan's girlfriend, but also to her friend, Monica. And immediately, Sammy hits it off with this Monica, very proud Jesus loving person who mm-hmm. under the pretense and and maybe in some ways genuine attempts to to proselytize Sammy and encourage him to kind of prey on his Jewishness invites him back to uh to her house and they begin a relationship and become boyfriend and girlfriend back home just uh just to fill out this sort of section we see Mitzi at home has become a little bit more unstable and unhappy in this home, she's got a she's bought a monkey that's terrorizing their home that she's decided to name Benny. And Bert has become increasingly concerned and is suggesting her and encouraging to her that she maybe consider therapy.
1: Well, that's what we do, right? When when the shit hits the fan, get a monkey. I think that's that's how you solve all I mean, of all of your problems. shit like, will hit the fan, I think. Yeah, exactly, quite literally. I mean, I love the introduction of Monica. I thought she was so funny and she added such levity to an otherwise kind of darker part of the movie. Um kudos to Sammy though for initially kind of like sticking up for himself and not taking any guff from from Logan or from Chad. Um yeah, I mean, the that was sort of like the first really sort of yeah that was aside from like this otherness that they were experiencing earlier in the movie this is the first you know sort of picture of anti-Semitism, you know that comes up with the with the bagelman um i think it's like first he gets teased in the locker room and then they show the bagel and they call him a jew hole or something like that and uh you know i think yeah monica kind of saving it with you know bringing some levity and kind of saving him and also you know, her whole thing was just great. I, I loved her.
0: Yeah, I, I think in some ways, like what you're saying, this is probably the most explicitly Jewish, you know, where, where Jewishness is really centered in the film. But it really does remind me of what you were talking about in the beginning, Esther, where it's not marked in a necessarily positive way, but it's, it's in isolation. It's he's the only him and his siblings are the only Jews in this school. Right? People make a big deal over like wow you're jewish and and are shocked by it they start accusing him or demanding that he apologizes for killing jesus like oh yeah his jewishness really stands in opposition and i don't know if we get any empowered jewish expression that 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 kind of is born out of this more more so than really just we see him bullied on account of his jewishness and we get to see this anti-semitism up close and uh and in his face
2: one of the things that i'm I'm just kind of thinking about now is the three locations, um, that we have for the Fableman family. Um, we've got New Jersey where presumably there were more than one Jewish, there was more than one Jewish family, even if they weren't on his block mm-hmm. because we didn't really see the anti-Semitic thing there that much or at all. Um, then Arizona where we also didn't really see it as far as I can recall. Um, But it also like wasn't a factor in how he lived his life. And then in um, Northern California, you know, this is the this is a place where I think there there weren't a lot of Jews. And um, so he was he was automatically both outsider and like a little bit exoticized. Um, And when I I typed the word exoticization in my notes, it changed it to eroticization, which is a not. Far off. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not what I wanted to say, autocorrect, but it is also in there, um, which is, you know, just that this person who was so different from everybody else became a little bit like he became a little bit of a sex object and Mm -hmm. Uh, that was new for him, too, but was also must have been really. Uh, Challenging to have that kind of interest at the same time as the bullying uh, and, you know, actual physical danger and uh, physical excitement kind of together um, is just a a very hard package for him to. uh, uh, I said hard package. Okay. Anyway, the point is, um, (laughs) it's just a kind of those are two tensions that are sometimes difficult to hold at the same time. Sure. So,
1: yeah. yeah. I mean they were I remember like Monica and Logan's girlfriend were quite tickled uh, with the fact that like he's talking about circumcisions. I feel like it came up yeah. somehow in the conversation and they were just like tee and super, you know, uh <laughs> you know, intrigued, like you're saying, about uh about his jewish persuasion and i think you're totally spot on with that yeah
0: yeah I, I think the circumcision you reminded me of a line that happens i think in a later scene but someone asks him like are, like since when are you jewish or something and he said since my circumcision oh that's what and it, it is yeah he and what he really does in these scenes to me adopts this very quippy smart alecky mm-hmm. and, and what we've i think in in previous episodes daniel called a very sort of jewish kind of uh you know New York of smartassy, kind of exactly sure. that that type of humor. And he really leans into this in a lot of these later scenes. And partly because he's this other character and he's just fighting back with his words when these I mean, we see characters who are so much bigger than him. The first scene we're introduced to of this uh in this high school is when they're playing volleyball and he looks like he's four years younger than everyone else there because they're all, you know, much taller, much more muscular. And uh, and yeah, and it really makes him stand out. Uh the the one other thing I wanted to mention, Esther, was you were talking about. How he's moving, you know, in, in every leg of the journey, it's like Steven Spielberg is moving further away from you know an ostensibly Jewish community towards one that is becoming much more anti-semitic and i just think the uh, the irony here is if if you continue the film beyond you know northern california obviously the next stop is is hollywood it's los angeles and in some ways you know there really is a he he finds his tribe finally and he finds you know a group which we know at the time hollywood you know and and remains there there are very large jewish communities that are living out there and it's it's almost like the further he's being pushed away from you know jersey it's 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 ultimately towards something and ultimately community and isolation from other Jews or ultimately it's isolation from other Jews that kind of pushes him towards finding this community, this artistic film community that always spoke to him for another, for a number of reasons.
2: I think that culturally that's, that's very accurate. I think, um, in terms of observing Judaism in the same book that I mentioned, um, before this, uh, Stars of David book, which I think is 2007. I don't remember something, something around there, mm-hmm. um, he talks about how um what brought him back to his actual Jewish identity um you know, beyond culturally Jewish or you know knowing that the Holocaust was important or all of all those things um is when his uh, wife Kate Capshaw converted to Judaism when they right. were getting married, like he, kind of returned to it then, uh, to accompany her on that journey. And that was when he felt like reconnected, um, which I think is also just a beautiful story about the value, which we see in some ways, I, I don't, I'm hesitating to make this comparison, but, um, you know, the, the Monica character is a woman of faith who, mm-hmm. you know, kind of makes him more Jewish, even though that's not necessarily her intention. Right. Um, and I wonder if that, if that echo is an intentional or oh, if I'm just reading it in. So,
1: I mean, this is the place to do it. You know, this is stretch city right here. Totally.
0: I, it, no, it, it makes sense. I mean, she's also the one and we're going to describe it in the next scene and hopefully this will set you up, Daniel, but she's also the one that reintroduces him into filmmaking and pulls him back towards it. You know, all of her attempts to, you know, maybe help him see the light. And they're ultimately very successful, just maybe not in the direction she's going in, but in the direction of, finding faith again right he finds his faith in his Jewishness so to speak I mean we don't see all that explicitly but he definitely finds his faith again in filmmaking and in telling stories and in viewing his life through a camera so I think in some ways she really can be credited with uh with pulling him towards that
1: nice yeah I think, uh, thank you for the segue, Harry. Um, let's, you know, moving on, as you mentioned, you know, Monica is invited over to the family, to the Fableman families for a meal where everyone's kind of like yelling at each other and arguing and that's when Mitzi delivers her line of, it's the artists versus the engineers and, you know, and the monkeys running around and everything and, um, you know, she she really does a, a, a nice thing. Monica, you know, says, oh, my dad has an Aeroflex 16 millimeter camera. For those keeping track at home, I think this is the third or the fourth camera uh, that Sammy is now, you know, leveled up at because, you know, although Benny bought him a Bolex, he turned in his old camera and has put it away and has not used his Bolex up until this point. So he, you know, he borrows the 16 millimeter camera from Monica uh, to film the senior ditch day because they're looking to uh, have some photographers there and to capture the moment where everyone hangs out at the beach and does games and all sorts of stuff. Um, Later on though, Sammy's parents tell the children that they're getting divorced. So Mitzi can go back to Phoenix and be with Benny, the human, not Benny, the monkey. Um, mm-hmm. The kids get super upset and Sammy imagines himself sort of, he sees himself kind of in the mirror filming that exchange. Uh, Monica and Sammy go to prom and uh, there is a cute montage here of uh, them filming the ditch day, but we'll get into the details of that in a second. But, you know, Monica and Sammy go to prom. He gives her like a nice... um is it a corset? Is that the little flower thing? Corsage. 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 Thank you. Yeah, the corset's the, anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, not a uh, present. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Monica and Sammy go to prom where Sammy gives Monica a corsage and he asks her to move to LA with him. And I think on the corsage is like a, a crucifix um, saying that he loves her and mentioning that his parents are also divorced. And she tells him You know, we can't fix things all the time. We sometimes have to suffer. She also calls him out and she's like, how could you possibly love me? You've only known me for a few months. But uh, Sammy presents his Ditch Day film and the students love it. I mean, it's a work of art. Everyone loves it. Uh, Logan is kind of overwhelmed by the positive, you know, golden boy perspective that Sammy has given him through the magic of editing. Um, And then I think Chad, meanwhile, sort of the, the real sub bully, if you want to call him that, is portrayed as like a buffoon in the film and he gets royally pissed off. And there's a really nice scene, which we'll talk about in a second in the hallway. Uh, So back home, Sammy's mother asks for forgiveness and says, you have to do what your heart says. Um, And so we'll, we'll kind of pause here right before uh, the next sort of section and kind of talk about prom and things like that. um, And really talk about Sammy's magnum opus uh, film, which is the ditch day film. Any thoughts uh, on on what we covered up up until this point?
0: Yeah, you mentioned that Monica line that she says to him, you know, that sometimes we can't fix things, sometimes we have to suffer. And that really is, I think, the progression that that we've seen Sammy going on, where he's recognized that with his art, and it's, it's all the observation we were saying about how it's not so much about controlling, controlling doesn't mean, and it can't mean changing and and fixing his parents' marriage and fixing all of his relationships and, you know, making the bullies like him. But what it can do is just help him see the narrative or see, see through a different perspective, own the narrative a little bit more process and, and filmmaking for him, you know, seemingly at this point becomes about processing. I, I would say in the actual ditch day film, we see the first, instances of a little bit of trickery we had this great moment when they were filming it when they were filming it on the beach where we saw these students pouring ice cream on their fellow students faces and we didn't understand why they were doing it and then when we actually see the film he does this great editing trick where he follows these pigeons flying above them and then cuts to the ice cream falling on their faces very clearly implying that you know these people had pigeon poop on their faces and it's I think that was the one instance where I said, okay, you know what? You can use a little bit of trickery. You can, it it doesn't always have to be objective truth. He's not a, you know, a a sort of Bazanian realist, so to speak, where he's, he's allowing himself to do some sort of editing tricks here. But I think that's exemplifies this moment of reckoning where he's trying to figure out what can be portrayed on the film. Can it change how he thinks about or can it change the the facts or can it just give him a new, maybe more lighthearted perspective or just a more analytical and processing perspective? So I, I felt like of all of his films, he's really grappling with that the most in this latest one.
2: The the beach scene, it reminded me of Top Gun, which is of course not <laughs> the reference that he was intending because Spielberg had nothing to do with Top Gun. But, um, but I think that the idea of these kids frolicking on the beach and feeling like they don't have, you know, adult supervision or restriction. It's like a real sense of freedom. And the idea that, you know, one of their own that a peer was was there just kind of capturing it all. But very unobtrusively, he wasn't like directing in the same way that he directed his Boy Scout friend playing the general who had seen his team die in a war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was just kind of like. Being or I mean clearly the the ice cream scene that you mentioned had to have been orchestrated or directed, but we don't see that happening and so in a way it's it's also like us watching him watching them, so it's um it's it's a it's a play in in perspective. I was actually thinking that over this in my mind to try to figure out like why he's so upset with this golden boy portrayal, and I think that the reason is because he doesn't that's not how he sees himself and it disturbs right. him that anyone could look at him as the ideal, because as we know, bullies often bully because they're uncomfortable with their own state of being. And to make themselves feel better, they beat up on somebody else who is perceived to be of a lower stature or easily more easy to beat up uh, rather than beat up themselves, which as Jews, we know the best thing to do is beat up ourselves because, you know, that's <laughs> right. it, that, that way it doesn't hurt yeah. anybody except us so um so i think it's a really interesting thing that he that um sammy did with his camera is show him a part of uh, and show both him and chad uh the way another person could see them and i think it's interesting that the two are so differently portrayed because they were both bullies but Mm -hmm. clearly you know chad is the obnoxious a-hole and um and and Logan is kind of just like brutish, maybe misunderstood and, you know, feels like he needs to teach Sammy a lesson because of the girlfriend situation that he oversaw that he fied on. Accidentally. Yeah. Right. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I think it's just interesting to watch the perspectives of again, people see themselves through Sammy Fableman's lens and whether or not they like the truths that are portrayed in that way
1: yeah i mean even in the reaction shots of this film which had like great reaction shots but then we are treated to reaction shots like you said esther of like the guy who's getting like seagull shit on his face like i i there were a few of them in the audience and they're like yeah that's me i got ice cream on my face and they're just like loving it and and meanwhile like chad who's like trying to sneak up on a girl and like take her soda pop and sit next to her. And she pulls the blanket away. Then we cut to his reaction shot and he's kind of not too happy about it. And, you know, I, I think this sort of hallway scene where Sammy is at first kind of like sitting on the floor, Um, you know, after the screening is over, he's disappeared. He's sitting on the floor kind of like moping in the hallway and then Logan finds him. And like you said, uh, Esther talks to, talks to him about why would you portray me this way and things like that. And then, you know, I, th- I think there's almost a position switch because Logan ends up sitting on the floor, right. Or does maybe, and then, and then he gets up and offers him a joint and then leaves. But there's just, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because now Sammy kind of has this power over Logan where he can take down the fiercest bully, with his filmmaking trickery and kind of mock him in front of all the people using his his art and things like that which I thought was really really uh too bad we didn't get to see like Sammy Fableman high though I would have really enjoyed some you know some maybe like kind of interesting film psychedelia but oh well maybe for the next one
0: the film continues, we actually jump ahead and one year later, Sammy is living with his dad and we witness him coming home from school and having a panic attack because he hates what he's doing in school. He he just wants to be making film and he's trying to make film, but he's repeatedly getting rejected by a bunch of uh, studios. So his dad calms him down, he makes him some tea and he ultimately over the course of their conversation, I think more so than we've seen throughout the movie, gets to a place where he's willing to even reluctantly say, if you need a dropout, you could do it. Go for it. He ends up handing Sammy a letter that he received, one of the letters that Sammy hadn't opened yet. Sammy opens it, finds it's from CBS, and they invite him to come in and interview. So then we have this great final scene where he goes to the interview, and the interviewer, after talking to him for a little bit and telling him about the new show, Hogan's Heroes, that he's going to be an assistant for, he tells him very excitedly, the uh, interviewer, oh, do you want to meet the greatest director of all time? And basically marches him across the office to wait for who we ultimately find out is John Ford, Obviously, one of Sammy's heroes, the director of uh, the Liberty Valance film that we saw at the very beginning of the movie, one of the initial inspirations for Sammy. And we just have this great scene where Ford basically gives him a lesson in horizons and just tells him, you know, here's my lesson to you. If the, if the horizon is in the bottom of the frame, is if it's on the top of the frame, that's interesting. If it's in the middle, it's not and then sends him out of his office. And Sammy is delighted by this encounter, walks out smiling. And, you know, as we know from the true story, it goes on to become one of, if not the most important directors of all time. And that's where the film ends.
2: Or does it?
0: Bum, bum, right. bum. <laughs> Meet the Fablements too. coming next year.
2: <laughs> it's it's where I thought it was going. You know, I feel, I felt like... I mean, because a part of it, again, is is because we know whose story this is, like we know what happened to him. You're not going to like get that, you know, that layover text at the end being like Steven Spielberg went on to become one of the greatest directors of all time. Uh, he married his. This is Mitzi Fableman, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, you're not going to get all that biographical stuff that goes on at the end of a biopic um, because these are these are not those people, they are characters. Um, but because the characters are following along the train tracks, if you will, uh, set mm-hmm. up by Spielberg, like that. Then, <laughs> then, then, you know, you know where it's going to go that he's gonna, you know, maybe you don't know if it's John Ford or, um, whoever did the, the, the movie with the train, the, um, was it, was it Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille? Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, I, that's where I thought it was going. Oh, he's going to meet Cecil B. DeMille because that's going to be the callback. Um, but it was a different callback. But it's, you know, I, I think that 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 was where we all knew he was going to go. Uh, it's where he ended up. And then, you know, I, I, I he's in Hollywood and that's whoever, whether he's Spielberg or whether he's every director who's ever traveled a trajectory like that, this is where he lands and among the the sound stages. So.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's almost more exciting, like we were saying in the beginning, not mapping it onto Steven Spielberg and not knowing where it goes. I I love this as a very self-contained, you no, know, not biopic, just coming of age story. And there's something very victorious about the fact that we don't see him when he's winning his Oscar or directing his big film. But for him, just getting the permission from his father and just the connection and the ability to commit his life to film and to tell the stories he always wanted to, the one thing that was clearly more important than anything else, just getting to start on that path is such a victory that I almost love that the movie ends like that. And if this wasn't the Steven Spielberg would be so satisfied that this was a great movie. He gets to start this journey. Who knows if he's going to be super successful or a producer or, you know, an assistant for the next 30 years. To me, that almost doesn't matter. And I know that's a little bit ridiculous to say in a story that's so fundamentally about the Steven Spielberg epic, but I think this movie is so successful because the story works even without the Spielberg future and even without the title, like you were saying over the screen that says he would go on to become one of the most celebrated directors of all time. Like, I I love this as just it's a great punctuation mark on the Sammy Fableman coming of age story.
1: I, I think one a couple of things I wanted to point out with this last chunk. Um... We do get some closure on Mitzi's, you know, sort of future, so to speak, because in addition to kind of like leafing through the mail and finding the CBS letter, Sammy also does get some photos uh, in the mail. So he's kind of looking at some photos of uh, Mitzi and Benny kind of enjoying their barbecue in Phoenix with the kids. And so it's, you know, we have we have kind of tied that story element into like a nice bow that his sisters are raised in Phoenix and he's attending school. Shout out to Cal State Long Beach, uh, which is where Steven Spielberg went and then and I think transferred to USC, but, you know, got to give shout outs to the Cal state system while we can, because I went to Cal state Northridge as everyone knows. Uh, not really. Um, and you know, I, I just love this sort of reveal of, of, of the John Fordness of it all. You know, we, we kind of meet the, the toughened, uh, secretary who kind of gets probably people like this all the time coming to her office. And so we just see her and him and there's this kind of fun interplay. And then we hear the Liberty Valance music and we just kind of pan over to all these different posters and things like that. And, um, really cool, fun cameo by David Lynch. It took me a second to realize who it was. Um, and yeah, I, I, I loved it all. But as I mentioned, you know, I would have loved to see a little bit more of, Steven Spielberg's early career. He did look, by the way, like a dead ringer of early Steven Spielberg with this sort of wig that he was wearing. He he kind of had a the the Steven Spielberg look down. Um, and I would have appreciated some photos during the credits of Steven Spielberg's childhood and maybe some pictures of him like on set and maybe a picture of him and his mom, like or maybe even at the restaurant at the Milky Way or some some fun elements like that to kind of tie it together, even though it is a different thing. Whew. So this is a lot. And I want to take a breather here, take a quick break, and we'll come back, Esther, and we will rate the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars based on content, themes, and cast and crew. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're discussing Steven Spielberg's *The Fabelmans*, and now we're going to rate it on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. So, Daniel, why don't you get us started talking about some of the content, cast, crew, themes, all the above?
1: Sure, absolutely. We didn't really touch on it too much about the cast and the crew in terms of their Jewishness, but we'll, we'll 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 dissect it a little bit here. You know, obviously Spielberg is is Jewish. Tony Kushner is Jewish. John Williams and Janusz Kaminski. I can't speak to their Jewishness. Um, But in the cast, we have Seth Rogen and Judd Hirsch, who are Jewish. And I believe Michelle Williams is raising her kids Jewish, is what I heard. I don't know uh, more background on that, but maybe Esther could fill us in um, on that. But, uh, you know, so that's for cast and crew content. You know, it's a coming-of-age story. There are Jewish elements to it. We have the Uncle Boris. We have the anti-Semitism that presents itself. Um, We have the Hanukkah lighting at the beginning no davening, no rabbis, no kippahs. I didn't see any mezuzahs on the door, and we even saw mezuzahs in clueless. So just, just I think point there it. Were mezuzahs. There was. No, okay. I,
0: I definitely noticed a couple.
1: You did. Yeah. Okay, mezuzah. Okay, I retract my mezuzah comment then. Uh, themes, I think, is really where where a lot of this the, my score is going to be sitting. You know, because there's sprinkles of content themes. We have things. You know, anti semitism, otherness. Th- this idea of like having like a multi-generational family, I feel like is kind of not necessarily a Jewish thing, but, you know, having the bubbies around, I think, for all the meals and all the different holidays. Um, yeah. so I think I've seen more Jewish films and I've seen less Jewish films, but I wanted to see Esther how you sort of felt about the Jewishness of the film, not the quality, but sort of using our kind of kooky rubric. Where did you feel like this film landed?
2: Yes, a, a kooky rubric indeed. Um yeah, no, I. I always want things to be more dewy. That's, that's like one of the things I talk about, especially when it's true to the environment of the film. Um, You know, and I, I liked the, uh, like I said, the Hanukkah candle lighting, I think was really right on the money. Um, I, I was trying to figure out when I was watching it, whether they were writing, lighting it from the right side or not. And Mm. like, it's really hard because it was fast and, um, And also because the way the camera flips, um, you know, sometimes if they're on the other side of it, they could be right lighting it the correct way. And then the camera is just showing us them lighting it the wrong way. So, like, I I didn't really get too bogged down in that. Uh, I didn't let it ruin the movie for me or anything. But um, but, you know, I, I definitely liked the fact that the Judaism was kind of peppered in. Um, and it seems like that's very true to the environment uh, that they're trying to create and you know' it's true to the the Spielberg experience uh, of Judaism and when he was growing up as well. Um, so I I don't I don't think, Like for me, I always want more Jewiness in there. I always want, um, I always want Judaism to be a source of meaning rather than conflict, um, a source of acceptance and community rather than othering. Um, But I understand that othering uh, uh, makes more, uh, makes more dramatic content than um, acceptance and love. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about the, the Jewishness of it. Harry,
1: how about yourself?
0: The movie has a lot of Jewish content in it. I think that's really where it shines as a sort of Jewish film. I mean, it, it's all on the surface. You don't have to go looking very long. We talked about the Hanukkah scenes in the beginning and every instance with the mezuzahs and just their identity as a Jewish family is not subtext, it's text. It's there, right? We see, we we just, we hear it in their, in their speech and you mentioned, Daniel, they have dinners with their, you know, the generations of bubbies and people are working in Yiddish and just talking a certain way and talking about holiday and just... There, There's so much Jewishness, you know, shockingly high, and I, I agree with everything you're saying, Esther, about it being not necessarily a positive representation so much as this crutch that I think he's dealing with a little bit. I mean, in some ways, I think in some ways it just it lays the the like the framework for the movie right uncle boris there's there's no explanation or just oh he's jewish and they don't make a big deal of it that's just it, that's true to the story he had an uncle who was very jewish his family grew up jewish you know they he probably really did have that i mean we we spoke about it he did have that conversation with his father about how their house wasn't lit up so there's so much jewishness in the content because that's just true to the story and i think that that backs the narrative that we get thematically i actually didn't see it as much because i don't think that the Jewishness of the story or there's any sort of Jewish themes that are really driving a lot of the progression of the characters, a lot of the growth, the momentum, like we, I think we've even covered a lot of different things that, you know, themes that are running through the film questions about, You know, nature versus science versus art and nature versus control and and questions. And and I think there's Jewish reads to be had for all of those. Right. When we were talking about control and being a filmmaker, I was thinking about that concept of creation and being that observant God and and not weighing in, but just kind of taking a step back. I mean, so much of that, I think, can be connected to his Jewishness. But when the film is simultaneously so Jewish in its content, the fact that it doesn't, I think, make the effort to point out the relationship between maybe his Jewishness and his desire to create, his desire to observe, his desire to connect emotionally with his world the way he does, that makes it feel even more stark. Like I'll say to you, Daniel, I think in the past we've had episodes that maybe weren't ostensibly Jewish and said, well, thematically you can really tie this in. Mm -hmm. But because this film is so Jewish in its content – the fact that it's not explicit thematically makes me feel like I don't feel ne- like it's necessary to give this movie such a high Jewish ranking in terms of its themes. Cause I, I don't really see it so so strongly, so uh, I, I think that's going to weigh into my score. Counterpoint? Yeah. Oh, I'd love to hear it.
2: <laughs> I hadn't really thought about this again when I was watching the film, but now that I'm thinking about all the journey that we've just been on today, I feel like there is some wandering Jew-ness happening. Um, oh, yeah. The family does move around. Um, they go where the jobs are. Uh, they, you know, they... They always have them, you know, their their own family unit, and uh, in a very real sense, you know, there were a couple a couple of scenes that are shot in the desert, and there is that kind of moving from the place, you know, it, it's it, it felt like Abraham, you know, go from your homeland, where your birthplace to the to the place that I'll show you, and you know, when we get there, that's kind of when you'll get there, and so I think that that journey is something that and it's there's a reason that the journey of of Abraham is so core to several different faiths so is because this um this idea of journeying toward a goal that you know is out there, but you can't quite see. Um, and just taking that kind of leap of faith is something that people used to do because they didn't know they, they had a job offer. They didn't know what it was going to be like. And they just went um, because uh, they were called there by a higher power who happened to be the CEO of a company. Right. <laughs> so I think that there's some of that. I think that the, you know, like we've covered about the, the exoticizing and the out, Otherness and the outsiderness, um, that, that very much I think is a, is a story that many Jewish families are familiar with. Uh, the classic, are we insiders? Are we outsiders? Um, and that's something that, uh, as a, as a very small population of America, as a very small population of the micro population of the planet, there is, as we know from recent, uh, conversations that there's a, a, a very, uh, Large group of people who believe that we are we are legion and we are not we're <laughs> we're, we're we're a tiny bunch of pipsqueaks uh, who happen to you know sometimes receive the messages that we should go out and achieve uh, b- for stability's sake, uh, not for the sake of achievement, but to make a difference in the world. And I think that so that's, I think that some of some of that is in here too. Is that he feels very early on that the way he can make a difference is is by sharing these perspectives and sharing these stories. And so that's what he is moving toward, but he doesn't quite know what the road is. Whoa.
1: Mic drop. That was awesome. I I don't even have anything. Yeah. (laughs) That was great. I feel like no notes, no notes. That was, that was terrific. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like
2: impromptu Dvar (laughs) Torah. Totally.
1: No, I think, I think one thing I wanted to add is just like, as we're kind of digging in and digging in and digging in like this idea of like a, like just learning you know, and like Talmud Chacham, like being a, a wise student, a student of life, a student of the craft, you know, constantly leveling up. I don't know necessarily that's a specific Jewish value, but this idea of learning and getting better and learning from other people and just constantly trying to be better, bettering yourself, bettering your art, things like that, I think uh, kind of will weigh into my score. But I see Harry, want you want to just add something in real quick?
0: Yeah, I, I just I, I I did love the point that you were making. I, I think I'm wondering. It made me think just about Sammy and his journey, right? And, and comparing him to that, you know, I, the, to the to the character to the figure of Abraham, because he's not. I don't know if he's really driving his journey so much the same way. And I, I don't want to call him passive. I mean, that that's uh, perceived as a as a criticism level to to protagonist, but. He, like I think that the when you were finishing your point, you know, you made the point that he's kind of he doesn't know where his journey's going. He's just following along. And that really feels like how he navigated through these moves, right? He Bert, his father, of course, is the one who prompted each move. But in every scene, it almost feels like we're following Sammy as he's trying to place himself trying to navigate it. And the one area he's always able to do is with his movies. right he uses the power of of the book of the film to. Uh, always you know we get all these reaction shots every time he puts on a movie in a new place you get you know whether it's the amazement of his family or of his boy scouts or of the school he he's able to kind of pull himself out of there and anchor himself with his film but the journey itself almost feels reluctant to me like he 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 grows from it he learns he, his filmmaking gets better but wandering is a better word for it which i know you right. mentioned because that that's really how it feels it's very aimless it's very you know it's one step at a time but um I don't I don't know I don't know I, I have more thoughts about just how he's using his art to kind of bring people into his world share context I mean that, that's all there I'm I'm not seeing it as much I'm I'm try, trying to make sense of where that fits in with his Jewishness and if that if that's clear and maybe if that would have been could have been clearer for me to consider this to feel more explicitly Jewish because when i think of the jewishness of the film i think of him being bullied as uh, by anti anti-semitic people and him suffering because of his jewishness i'm i'm looking for the liberation that comes through his jewishness and i just i'm only seeing it through his film and i'm 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 struggling to put that connection together i think
2: when a person encounters another person's art right the The person who made the art had a set of intentions. Uh, They had things that they wanted to show. Uh, They had their own interpretation of what ended up on screen or the wall or of the pedestal or whatever the story is. And then it goes to a movie theater or a a stage theater or a museum, and then people encounter it and make their own assessments and do their own interpretations. And that's that's what we're doing here, you know, and I think that the, what we're doing and what, I think film criticism, I think conversations on podcasts, I think blogs, I think all of these things that have comment sections. I think they're all about central texts and uh, side commentary mm-hmm. um, and about people arguing about what the intent of the author was. And I think that that is something that we're doing that is making this film even more dewy than it would have been before. so like yeah. even if there's not like a lot of you know you you don't see his his journey as being uh, an outgrowth of his Judaism Um, but our experience of the movie is an outgrowth of our Jewish lens that we are applying to to this and so I don't know if Steve is listening but if he is like maybe he'll tell us if we if we got it Um, but you know he might not might not listen to this episode I don't know why Um, but he might not listen to this episode and if he doesn't That'll be okay. We have to live in this space where we don't know what his intention was, unless he gives another, uh, uh, you know, gives an interview to the Jewish Journal or something like that. Um, but, you know, I think that we bring our own lens to it. And if our lens is is Jewish in orientation or in influence, then we are likely to see things that may or may not have been his intent.
0: I, I think we're going to have to cut that together as a trailer for this podcast, because I, I love the way you said all that. And I, I totally agree. I mean, that's the exercise. We're reading our Jewish lens onto it. And sure. I think in some places we uncover the, the gold mines of look at how this fits in. Sometimes we don't see as much as we're expecting. And that's just, you know, that that's the game. And I, and I love it. And yeah, I love it, thanks and for I, pointing I, that out. I welcome our different opinions. Exactly. Totally. Thank you. I, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, you
1: know, that that what we're doing is in its way kind of like Talmudic and, and discussing it and in, in having differences of opinions. So Stephen, if you are listening, now would be a great time to pause and skip ahead because we are going to give this film a rating of one to five Jewish stars. Esther, you're our guest. Would you like to go first?
2: This is really hard. I don't like rating things. You know, those surveys that you get after an event asking mm-hmm. you if it was satisfactory or unsatisfactory on a scale of one to five. Um, I usually pick a, a middle number unless I'm really offended uh, or I really loved it. So I think that's that's my uh, approach.
0: Rest assured, we're we're rating the Jewishness, not the quality. So if you okay. want to just for the record, give it the All five right. out of five stars quality and then get to the Jewishness. Okay. Maybe that'll uh, help you rest easy.
2: Well, I, in terms of the Jewishness for a one to five Jewish stars, um, I think I'm going to go with a 3.5. I feel like there were really some solid moments in there. Uh, that we talked about. Um, and that it was definitely part of the family history and made sure that we knew that it was part of the family history. Uh there were a couple of good rituals in there. Um, you said you saw some mezuzas. I don't know that I clocked them, but um, you know, I think the ripping of the clothing for Kriya for the morning uh ritual I thought was was definitely present and visible um and made an impact. Um, so yeah, I would say three and a half.
1: It's all good. Um, I think for me, you know, uh, I probably join you Esther in that three and a half zone because, you know, it's more Jewish than it's not Jewish. It's not quite five stars. Uh, it's a, it's a coming of age story, like you said, with Jewish elements peppered in. So I might, I might sit there with, with you at the three and a half, uh, area. Harry, how about yourself?
0: It's it's like so objectively Jewish. Like I, I have to remove myself from the conversation we've had, not all of it, but from a lot of the conversation we've just had, because in some ways I'm fighting with myself over how thematically Jewish it is. But I, I think if you ask anyone or if you ask people in five years, what was Steven Spielberg's most Jewish film? Like, of course it's this one there. There's sure. so much Jewishness in it. This is the Jewish family unit. Like it, it's all there. I, I think I wanted more and I wanted more of the Jewishness to be, Not just the context that in some ways I felt like he was almost running away from, but I really wanted it to be part of the punchline, part of the the emotional growth, the journey towards film. And I I wanted that so badly. And because I think I haven't picked it up yet, but maybe on rewatch, I'll get there. Maybe, you know, after thinking about this for another couple of days, I'll get there. But because it wasn't there, you know, it it pains me to do this, but I'm still going to have to go a little lower than I wanted to. I'm still going to give it three, right? It has okay. to be above two and a Fair. half because this is such a Jewish movie. I, you know, I, it'd be comical if I called this like a one and said, you know, any of the other movies we've done was more Jewish than this because it's so Jewish. But I think it's part of just, you know, whatever the last conversation we've had, where we're getting in this, that I, I can't give it higher. So for now, it's a three. Maybe I'll revisit it sooner, but I'm going to come in on the lower end this time.
1: Sounds good. Okay, so Stephen, now you can turn it back on because it's time for Esther to uh, to give her plug. So Esther. Thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film. I wanted to ask uh, if there's anything you'd like to plug or promote for our listeners.
2: Thank you so much for that. And thank you for hosting me here today. This is really such a delight. Like I said, I I don't get a lot of opportunity to go deep into movies anymore. So uh, I was really grateful for this opportunity. so in terms of me, um, I'm available on the internet in various spaces. Um I um you can reach me on Twitter still for now uh, at Esther K. Um I still believe in the power of Twitter, so I'm not giving it up so quickly. Um we'll see how that how how well that statement ages in the next couple of months. Right. Um on Instagram, I'm Esther Kostanowitz, uh, which you can find you know, by correctly spelling my name, uh, which you can find by Googling me or by looking at Esther K on Twitter. Um, the bagel report is also on Facebook and on Instagram, uh, Facebook, it's the bagel report and on Instagram it's TBR the pod. Uh, Um, so that's, uh, that's our, that's our social media presence in terms of my own stuff. Um, I'm working on a lot of projects that have to do with, uh, Jewish representation on film. Uh, the bagel report is one of them. That is my podcast with Aaron Ben Moshe, uh, that we've been doing for upwards of 80 something episodes. Um, and we talk about Jews and popular culture and some film, but a lot of TV, um, some music. And, uh, we talk about all the stories that intersect in those two spaces and it's been real fun. And we are, um, we've gotten a couple of awards and we are moving into some interesting spaces in in January and we'll hope to have more on that soon. Um, but we're really looking forward to the, to the year ahead because it's going to be really super, super fun. Um, and I also write a column occasionally in the J, which is the Jewish news of Northern California, um, where I write about TV. In addition to that, I write at E-Jewish Philanthropy about Jewish philanthropy and I've a freelancer who has written in a lot of other places. So that's, that's my long spiel. Um, You can find me anywhere um, (laughs) writing about Jewy things. And I have a project called TV gone Jewy, where I talk about that stuff too. So um, really uh, if you are interested in the intersection between Jews and popular culture, I have any number of outlets for you.
1: Fantastic. Well, we'll put all of that stuff into the show notes so people can kind of reach out to you and, you know, consume your content however they'd like, uh, in all the various forms, but yeah, really thank you so much for coming along this long journey to kind of discuss this uh, amazing film that we saw in theaters, which is awesome.
2: Yeah. Imagine that.
0: Yeah. Anything, uh, anything for you to plug, sir. Just keep seeing movies, keep going to theaters to see movies. And, uh, yeah, it was such a pleasure having you on us
2: there. Thank you. Thank you both for having me.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Well, thanks everyone for listening to Jews on Film, the podcast. Uh, You can check us out on all the social medias at Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok, on YouTube. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you haven't seen this film and you've listened to the podcast this far, thank you. But if, you know, if there's other Spielberg films you want us to check out or any thoughts about the film, feel free to reach out to us and let us know. Um, you can email us at Jews on, Jews on Film Pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.